HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Why is Heritage Radio Network important to you? HRN is very nostalgic to go into because it's really the only place that you have this really warm, homey experience to watch people get together and talk about the things that really make a difference. It's really fun when I ask guests, do you want to be on Heritage? And they're like, Albertas, yes, 100%. I believe that we all are really trying to bring people together. I think getting more people excited about good, local, well-crafted food and away from big ag and tasteless commodity food is so important. It's kind of an honor to be sitting there with somebody in a space where so many other people have sat. Join HRN's vibrant community of thoughtful eaters. Become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer, the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep, deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We had dashi, ramen, and zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Sonoko Sakai, who is a cooking teacher, noodle maker, food writer, and a green activist based in LA and at Hachapi in Southern California. Sonoko just published Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors, and it is really literally uh, covers everything you'd like to know about the basics of Japanese food. So today we'll discuss how Sonoko's unique childhood inspired her to build her career in food, a passion for preserving ancient grains, a new book, of course, and much, much more. But quickly, before we start, Japan is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. Also, if you have any ideas about the topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at the heritage radio network.org or akikotema.com. So let's start a conversation with Sonoko Sakai. Hello, Sonoko. Welcome. Hello. 
So uh, some of the listeners suggested that I should definitely have you on the show. So finally, I'm very oh, excited. Thank you so much for inviting me. So welcome. And you're on book tour right now. Yes, I am. It's such a nice reason to be in New York. Right. Yes. So it's cold, but yeah. still. <laughs> so uh, first of all, so I heard that uh, you had a very unique childhood living in different cities. Mm-hmm. So where, you, uh, where did you live and how each place influenced you to become who you are now? Well, I was born in New York City. I was one of the the first of uh, five children to be born here in the United States. Mm. And uh, my father worked for Japan Airlines. He was the first generation of employees that was sent abroad mm. after the war. So this was um, uh, in times when uh, Japan was still in recovery mode from mm. the war. And uh, the sentiment was a little different, but... Here, my fa- young father and my mother, with their, m- with my brother, and then me, and then my sister, we, we started our family here in New York, mm-hmm. and we were here for about four years, and then, uh, then we got transferred back to Tokyo, mm-hmm. and my father was uh, running the international side of Japan Airlines, so then he got transferred again to San Francisco, mm. and then he got transferred again to Mexico City, wow. where I spent actually four years of my life, and then back to Japan, where um, I uh, lived with my grandmother uh, in Kamakura, mm. outside of Tokyo, uh, until our house in Tokyo was ready to be moved in. So I spent uh, a formative years uh, in Mexico City and Kamakura, mm. and then eventually in Tokyo. And then after finishing uh, junior high school and part of um, uh, high school, we came back to Los Angeles. My father did one more uh, overseas assignment, uh, and this is basically where I am right now. Wow. Yeah, a mm. lot of moving around. Mm. So so you can speak Japanese, English, and Spanish. Right, as well. right. Wow. They're all mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm just curious, though, you know, the mix, Mexico is an interesting element, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the Mexican element in your side? The Mexican element is um, when I'm in Japan, I, I crave for tacos, you know, <laughs> for a good, good like, a, mm. you know, homemade tortillas or something. And when I'm in L.A., I really want some good natto and soba. So mm. I think a lot of it is culinary, but um, I think... You know, uh, a lot of the singing, uh, my music came from growing up uh, singing and singing Mexican songs. Mm. But I think my my grandmother, being in Kamakura and growing up with my grandmother next door, had a major influence in um, establishing my identity Mm. as a Japanese person and looking at the traditional uh, life. Right. That is very, you know, very much disappearing today because she comes from the Meiji gener- you know, the Meiji era. So mm. that's gone, right? Right. And, um, so I, I, I was, I had an awakening in Kamakura mm. as far as my Japanese cultural identity is concerned. Right. So for listeners who are not familiar with Kamakura, Kamakura is still is a very historic city. Yes. And very special. And I watched a video um, about your life in Kamakura when you grew up. Like craftsmanship. Yes, craftsmanship. There's also, it's the third oldest capital of Japan and uh, known for the Zen Buddhist um, Buddhism to Mm -hmm. flourish in that city. So there's lots of temples and shrines and there's the sea 
And um, because there are many temples and shrines, there's also a lot of craftsmen that serve the the you know that made the the tofu mm. and uh, and there's good uh, tea. We did there was a tea ceremony in in different places happening all the time, including my grandmother's house and um, incredible seafood and artisans working on um, carving. Uh, Buddhist sculptures and making tatami mats and uh, fishmongers and tofu makers. Anyway, every day I really was exposed to the craftsmanship, and mm-hmm. that was not really unusual back in the 60s, but um, it was uh, an amazing time. Mm-hmm. Right. So it sounds like it's in you. You kind of inherited that yes. kind of craftsmanship. It's the, it's, it's, um, my treasure that I actually got to see these mm. people working every day with their hands and um, I'm not really a craftsman but um, I wanted to see how I could preserve that mm. with words or with with the foods I cook or with the things I source or you know how I share Japanese culture right so yeah. we'll discuss the book in yeah. a moment but yeah. your book is full of that mindset of craftsmanship and I really enjoy yeah. even you know before the show we discussed that how much you know even one recipe has some element of craftsmanship I really found it oh is that right thank mm-hmm. you so much yeah, yeah so it's, it's beyond far beyond the book well you know one book cookbook so we'll discuss it in a moment yeah. but I was curious so when did you move back to the U.S. I mean you said 40 years ago? Yes, uh, in the 70s, um, my father was transferred to the, to Los Angeles, and I was a junior in high school. Mm. So it's already, it was kind of a hard transition for me because I was so used to being Japanese mm. and going to school in Japan and um, trying to figure out how to acculturate to the U.S., American culture. Mm. But um, it's actually ended up being the place where I've lived the most. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, as as far as I I know, you are very balanced, like fifty fifty, you know, Japaneseness and non Japaneseness. And yeah. your core, you have a very strong Japanese element in you. So. Yes. Yes. I take a lot of pride in 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 that that you know Japaneseness of me. But I'm also very American, mm. <laughs> and I'm a little Mexican too. When I want want to be, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, so. Um, well, you got into cooking. Yes. And according to your book, I really enjoyed reading again, but you grew up with your grandmother, mother, you're always into cooking. Right, yeah. Well, I think all grandmothers were basically home cooks. Mm-hmm. Mothers were home cooks. Not, not too many uh, women worked, worked. Well, actually, she did some, she was a teacher, English teacher, but by the time I met her, she was already retired. So, um, but... Um, yeah, she was in the kitchen, and, and I could smell wonderful things coming out of that kitchen. She was not only um, a good Japanese cook, but she, al- she also baked bread and, and cakes, and she was probably the only person in Kamakura that owned an oven, Oh wow. a Western oven, a mm. tiny one, but a lot of things came out of that oven. And uh, my sister actually became a pastry chef, and I'm the one that I thought I was going to become a pastry chef but I just became more of a savory home cook <laughs> but it's it's we had yeah just everything from sourcing the ingredients directly from the fishermen or uh, you know going into a, a rice shop and watching the miller mill rice these are all things that 
is by tagging along my grandmother mm -hmm. and seeing how she selected ingredients. And mm. um, I think it was a, a substantial part of my culinary education. Right. And uh, so I also heard that you used to uh, be a foreign film buyer. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, where, is, where is, is it in the picture of who you like? Well, I actually spent more than 20 years in film. Mm. And um, my, my, I was at UCLA teaching, I, I was in education. Actually, I thought I would become a foreign service, like a diplomat. Mm. I always wanted to work in international relations without understanding what that really meant. <laughs> so when I came out of college, I really just found myself having all kinds of uh, un, very, not very useful uh, courses <laughs> behind me. And, you know, I was not quite a businesswoman or anything like that. But um, my parents wanted me to come back and get married. But I just said, I'm just going to continue in graduate school. But I had to figure out how to make a living. So I started working in the film school at UCLA, mm. which actually was an incredible education because not only did I find my voice in English, but I um, started looking at beautiful films and photography and and also I realized that there's this whole universe out there mm. of interesting stories mm. from all over the world. So I kind of deviated from being uh, in education to being in working in films. Mm. And as a, as a film seller, uh, selling rights, film rights, to buying rights for the Japanese market. But I always had in mind food. <laughs> like, I could travel and I could eat good food. I could go to the... F the first thing I would do when I was in at the film markets, like in France or Italy, I would just go to the market. First, <laughs> I, I would just, like, figure out where the, the farmer's markets were. And this is where I devoted most of my time in the bakeries. <laughs> mm, wow. So yeah. I could clearly see there was a past coming to this point. Yeah, but I thought it was all important. You know, I should know about the wines. I should know about good food, which helps me find good stories. And it, it's just all part of my education. Mm. I'm all uh, connecting all the, these dots together uh, and, and turning this into my own story. Mm. So... I don't think I wasted any time doing film. Yeah, so, well, and I understand you are such a good storyteller from, I think I've never attended your classes, but also you really communicate, and in your book it's so obvious, so. Well, it took me a long time, though. It wasn't <laughs> easy. You know, the last book I did was 35 years ago when my son was born. Mm. So I actually spent a lot of time thinking about this thing, and I needed to mature myself as a, as a person, as a cook, and... Um, I don't think I was, if you asked me 10 years ago, write another cookbook, I don't think I could have produced the same thing. Mm. You know, it's, it's just my insight was, I think, a little shallower. Yeah, I, I, I needed this experience of, you know, learning about food and mm. the people who grow it. And, right. Yeah. Right. It's not just on food on the plate. So. No. No. Right. Um, I wanted to share with the audience that, you know, you, when you, you wrote your first book, mm -hmm. there's a nice story of your film teacher, I think. In the first one? Right. Yeah. Uh, you, in the introduction, you mean? Um, uh, well, somebody asked you to write a book. I mean, suggested. Oh, yeah. So that was my uh, professor at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And I was um, working in the film department uh, in, in his photography studio. And he, he was a documentary uh, filmmaker, Lou Stuman, And he... Yeah, I was his assistant, and he was also teaching screenwriting, and, and I would 
occasionally bring bento boxes to him, you know, and he just was fascinated by my my cooking. And he said, well, Sonoko, you should um, maybe maybe um, write a cookbook. Maybe you could find your voice through your kitchen. It's, it, you're so comfortable cooking. So I thought, you know, that that might be really the gateway, the doorway into finding my voice in English. Because as, as I explained to you earlier, I, I grew up in so many different places. I had this multicultural personality with all these languages flying all over me in my dreams and <laughs> in real life. So I said, okay, this is a way I could focus on improving my English language. And so I started writing this book and he helped me. Mm. It was an amazing experience. It took me you know, three years, but I did. That's how I wrote my first cookbook. Mm. Yeah, and the bento must have been really good, convincing. Oh, I, don't know. <laughs> I was in my t- late twenties and daring to write a cookbook, and but it did get published, and it was uh, it was maybe a little bit early for me to do this in the early eight and the mid eighties. People were starting to learn about Japanese food, sushi, right? Sushi mm. became very big, and Japanese economy was boosting, but nobody thought of Japanese home cooking. People mm. thought. Japanese food is something you eat at a restaurant from someone, an expert, you know, sushi chef or kaiseki. And nobody even thought of breaking the myth of Japanese home cooking. Mm -hmm. And not too many Japanese people living that here, I guess. Right. Or maybe a little bit, but it was still, I think there was still a veil of mystery. Mm, Right. I think even still now, though. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, So so you, you are... You know, you didn't say you are like, you know, train or something, but I think you have a very strong philosophy of cooking. So, yeah, what is that? Well, I, th- I um, basically, and I think a lot of it had to do from growing, in, growing up in California, spending time in California. Um, one of the, the people that we met were Japanese-American farmers. They were really kind to us and invited us to their farms, and um, we went hunting for, like, sea urchins uh, before it got kind of more difficult to do it on a casual level, but, um, and, you know, making hoshigaki, you know, dry persimmons. These were first generation of Japanese-American people that were preserving the tradition, a lot of it that was fading in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think my, my cooking interest even broadened when I really started learning from these people and, and also seeing how they were adapting to this country without having always to rely on Japanese things from, you know, Japanese ingredients from Japan. Mm. So um, just from being uh, just an authentic Japanese home cook or uh, I, I became more of a adapted, a flexible home cook, mm. learning from different sources and and sourcing things from the farmer's market or from... Um, my farmer friends, and I think I, I really matured in the years that I started rooting myself in California. Mm, right. So, so local, sustainable. That's to me comes. Yeah, to and local and sustainable is a, a word that has become very popular in the last what ten years, 20, 10, 15 years. But we never use that kind of word. It, Japan has always been a bit about sustainability, about not wasting. Mm. Uh, you know, my mother, grandmother lived through several wars, or especially my grandmother. She says she's lived through like three or four wars and wars. And <laughs> which ones are those? And she's like World War One. Korean War, World War II, but things were always scarce, and so she was about frugality, 
and my mother was about you know living through hunger you know so so uh, she did not like waste and so that was economy was very important part of the principle but also um, we looked for seasonality we looked for um, uh, seasonality and freshness and beauty you know you just don't you know pile up your plate I mean these are uh, principles that I have learned as, as you know as a basic part of my cooking philosophy. Mm. But also there's other things that um, nicely wrap up in fives, and I talk about it in my cookbook. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But about uh, Japanese, I think, cooks all have this five different uh, groups of five principles. It's uh, called gogyosetsu, if you're uh, Japanese, Chinese people call it wushin. But you would already know, like, the five basic senses, right? And uh, sour, sweet, salty, you know, bitter, you know, and then there's umami also, so maybe there's six senses, but there's also five colors. Very important uh, when you're uh, cooking that you're not just using white, just white bread, right? You want to, it's white, red, yellow, green, black. These are, if you start um, thinking in terms of how you plate your, your dishes or the kind of ingredients that you use uh, for cooking, then you are diversifying the way you cook and bringing more nutrients to your plate. So I always think about making sure that there's balance and harmony in my cooking. So, um, and and different skills, like, you know, you could cut, and we like to just cut and slice raw if it's a very fresh piece of fruit. You don't want to fuss with it too much. You just want to eat it straight. But there's also steaming, there's grilling or searing and there's braising or simmering so um learning these basic techniques five techniques is very useful for a home cook you don't have to be a master you know sushi chef or anything but um variety Hmm. is is something that and deep even deep frying you know you shouldn't be scared and i um encourage people to try frying tempura for example and uh, it's fun it's fun to do and so I'm always um, encouraging my students to um, think in terms of these five concepts. Mm. And um, I, I keep going into other directions, too, you know. And um, let's say that even um, temperature, you know, mm. temperature of how you serve your meal. You should, you know, serve hot things hot, cold things cold. I talked about portion portions, but also the atmosphere you're, of the of the table setting Mm -hmm. you know you want to sit by a window my grandmother's always like setting the table even if it was for one person very important that you just don't eat out of a pot Mm. you know (laughs) (laughs) or putting like chopsticks and raise the 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 chopsticks from from directly from placing it on the table just put something to rest your chopsticks or also just your mood you know Uh, how if you are in a good mood as a cook you actually make other f- people feel better. Mm. It should not be an obligation. It should be a joy. Right. So these are elements that I wrap up in five that I think it's very important um, thing that should play out while you're cooking. Mm. That's so important. Yeah, and I think so, yeah. We get so caught up in the busyness of everyday life that you just want to put food on the table. I don't like to approach food that way. Mm. You have to treat your ingredients with respect. Right. And Everybody only has, you know, uh, a you know given amount of time, right? And I, I like to use. Um, the, I think time is precious, and right. we want to respect our ingredients. Mm. And even if you're so stressed out, 
by having, say, it's just like, you know, making a good cup of coffee. You have a break and you have great nutritious food. It's not just kind of meditating, but also you get nutrition. Yes, I think it it really is very um, wholesome that way. and it uh, makes you feel better, I think. Mm. So, well, I think uh, this is a one thing that's very symbolic of what you do. I heard you like making soba noodles, yes, which yes. is simple, nutritious, and kind of meditating. So, yeah. Um, so, why did you get into making buckwheat soba noodles? Yeah. Well, if you ask any person in Japan. Do you make soba noodles at home? <laughs> it's like insane. No. <laughs> it's probably a no, mm-hmm. right? Do you make udon noodles at home? Maybe, mm-hmm. right? That's more common. Do you make ramen noodles at home? Never, right? <laughs> I do all three. And um, because I've lived overseas in, in the United States most of my life, um, I always craved for really fresh noodles. Mm-hmm. And I've depended on uh, dried noodles and... But I was never happy with the dried soba noodles, mm. which is mostly made with wheat, like 70% wheat, and they still call it soba noodles. And I said, no. So I, uh, and I was thinking um, one day while I was still working in the film business, I, um, I, I actually produced this one, one, one film that flopped. <laughs> it was one of the few movies I made, but it was a big flop mm. because it opened during the week of the crash. Okay. And I was really disappointed and really sad and financially in a disaster. But I said, okay. And I went back to Japan. And for comfort, I went for a slurp of my favorite soba noodles. And I felt so restored. And I was just thinking, God, what if I just put my, my hands in flour and water and just learn how to make some noodles and see how that exercise will do. It's mm. very rote. It's just mixing water and flour. But you have to pay attention to the ingredients. So it's, it's meditation. Mm. It's like, and I, I started taking some workshops. And, you know, and I would start coming back to Japan to do this. And then I even went and apprenticed with, a, you know, just an estage with a, a, with a Michelin soba maker in Tokyo. And my father was like so angry. He's like, why are you wasting your time and throwing out your, your career, your you know, 20 year career in film and, and doing this? I said, because I just want to restore myself. I need to do something different. I mm-hmm. think I've, you know, film was great. It was great. I did it for a long time, but I think I'm, I'm ready to do something that's more tactile, that I, I get my hands in something and I slow down and I have control. Or mm-hmm. even with soba, you don't have full control. You know, if you don't pay attention to the ingredients, you could end up with a noodle that's going to fall, all, fall mm-hmm. apart. So I just, it's for health reasons, I, I went and uh, started making noodles to slow down. Mm-hmm. And so. it's so good. Yeah. Right. I, I think, like you said, maybe, you know, making a pizza dough is another craft, but, you know, soba is so flaky and, you know, it's just so hard to make and I never even tried myself. Oh, it's easy. It's easy. I think people, there's a myth about soba making uh, and they put it on a pedestal, but I think if you try it, it's not that hard. Okay. It may not look that great in the beginning, but uh, with practice, you could actually get really good at it. And I... I actually, even while in New York, I did like 
three, two sessions, three sessions of soba making with people who've never made soba before, they all made really beautiful noodles. Mm. And I teach every weekend uh, a variety of classes in Los Angeles and elsewhere. Um, also King Arthur Flower in Vermont and, and, and Seattle. And most people have never made soba before, but most people go home with noodles. Mm. It's really amazing. Wow. So listeners, it's it's worth trying making yeah, <laughs> soba noodles. Yeah, it's like food medicine. It's a really, it's a full protein. Buckwheat is a full protein. Buckwheat in this country has always been treated sort of like a, a green manure, and farmers use it as a rotation crop, and they don't even let it grow to seed. But the bees love the flowers, hmm. and it's not a wheat. It's a you know, gluten-free plant that is uh, a, a related to the rhubarb plant. And um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful seed, a pseudograin mm. that makes incredible flour. Mm. That's smooth and it's good for your digestion. And uh, we we say blood cleansing. You know, it cleanses your blood. And in New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve, everybody in Japan eats soba noodles um, for longevity and good luck. And they don't eat. They put ramen aside, udon aside. They just eat soba noodles. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so in the Edo period, um, you know, there's so milled down and processed rice was so popular among rich people. So yeah. they got very, very. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they ate buckwheat and then yeah. they became healthy. Healthy again, yeah. right? Yeah, the, the refined foods, white foods, uh, don't do you much good. You know, you want to go browner, you know, you want the whole, whole grain mm-hmm. or the whole um, seed. And I think that's the movement that. Um, is happening right now is to lean more towards less processed food. Mm. Okay, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we talk about um, Sosonoko's uh, ancient grain passion as well as her cookbook. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the Welsh natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. You listen to Heritage Radio Network because, let's face it, you have really good taste. You care about where your food comes from, who made it, and its impact on the planet. Whether you're looking for an inspiring interview with your favorite celebrity chef, the latest on Dave Arnold's Spins All, or if you want to get down and dirty with some agricultural policy, we've got you covered. 10 years in and 13,000 episodes later, HRN continues to be the go-to media outlet for thoughtful eaters like you. And we never could have done it without the support of our listeners. 
Help Food Radio continue in the future and help us raise enough funds for the year to come. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And since you've got such good taste, we have some very cool member gifts for you to choose from. Thanks for listening and for being a part of the HRN community. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcast Live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Sonoko Sakai, who is a cookbook teacher, noodle maker, food writer, and a grain activist based in LA, and a tehachapi in Southern California. So she just published the, the wonderful cookbook, Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. So、uh, let's talk about your book. So, again, it's a great title Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. That's exactly what's in the book. So,、um, what's the theme of sort of going? In other words, why did you want to write this book?、Um, well, I felt that、um, it, it has been 30 years or more than 30, 30 years since I wrote my first book. And I just、uh, I was at, at an age. Where my grandmother was when I first walked into her kitchen.、Mm. And she always used to say, I'm like living history. <laughs> and I felt like I was starting to feel like living history because I, you know, I remember my grandmother, who's from another era, and my parents were from another era. And I just felt like I need to write down these traditions.、Mm. And again, entering the kitchen is, a, is a, the simplest and the most authentic way to. Start as, a, as someone who's really interested in food. And、um, so I, I, and I felt that was missing. I felt like that was missing 35 years ago, but I thought I could write better、mm. with this experience that I've gained. And so、um, I started writing.、Mm. Yeah. So, the, so this book is it's a lot. Like every page has some yeah. kind of message. Yeah. So the first book, even though there's a lot of philosophy in it, I was still very young and I wasn't. Thinking, I'm going to make miso from scratch. I'm not going to make udon from scratch. You really don't see anything made from scratch,、right. maybe some pickles, but it's, it's more recipe,、mm. recipe and ideas, which I still believe in,、uh, the principles I believe in. But I thought, I just want to take it a, a step deeper.、Um, mm. As a home cook, what can we do at home here in America、uh, in a way that it's authentic to us?、Mm. And, Soybeans, we grow it here. You know, most,、uh, most of the soybeans are grown here in the United States. A lot of them are GMO, but I found a source for non GMO and I learned how to make miso and tofu. And it sounds like、um, a very laborious thing. Yes, it's a little bit more time in the kitchen, but that's the way people used to do it. Like the Japanese American, Obachan, Ojichan, the grandmas, you know, the, and the, the grandpas, they. That's the way they do They did everything.、Mm. And、um, I wanted to share that with like, the ne- next generation of, of people, of Japanese Americans, but also a lot of people that are non Asians will come to me and they say, Well, you know, I've traveled to Japan or I, I just love Japanese food. How could I make it at home? And I want to teach them how to make it from scratch. And,、mm. It's not the artisan way. It's just、uh, as a home cook, that's the way home cooks used to do everything、mm. from the noodle making to miso making to the pickle making.、Uh, we didn't rely on 
processed convenient foods, right? Mm. Um, unfortunately, that's becoming more popular, but um, I don't want to go there, including making the stock. I like to make it from scratch. Mm. Right. And the book is, um, of course, it's really beautiful. Like pictures are like, you know, like a coffee table book. Oh, and thank you. Yeah. And Rick, Rick Poon, my uh, photographer and my um, illustrator, mm. Juliet Belloc, did a wonderful job. They're not Japanese, French and Thai. I, <laughs> but you see, they have this shared love for, for, for Japan, mm. and I was able to communicate what I needed. Mm. Right. Well, one thing I felt about, you know, after you went through your book, I, you know, Japanese food is not Japanese. It doesn't belong to Japanese people anymore. It's more explored, kind of advanced by you know, Japanese people, and mm-hmm. which is amazing, wonderful. Isn't it thing. amazing? Yeah, I was, I, I now have, you know, I go to a restaurant and there's dashi, you mm. know, dashi infused something, and I'm going, wow, and there's wakame hidden under the spinach, or, <laughs> <laughs> and there's agar, and, and the chefs are very adventurous, and I, that did not happen 35 years ago. If I, you know, I remember being on a TV show here in New York, and I made miso soup for a morning show, and the host did not look so happy. <laughs> I don't think he liked the smell of bonita flakes, you know, and I was like, okay, but this is how you make miso soup. And mm. today, it's completely different. Right. Yeah, people yeah. love it. Well, some uh, non-Japanese chefs know way more than I do about how to utilize koji or those I things. know. It's, it's, isn't it incredible? Right. I, I get kind of intimidated. Me <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, um, what's your suggestion for our listeners who've never thought of cooking Japanese food if uh, they found your book and then mm-hmm. tried something? Well, my uh, book is uh, spends a lot of time in the pantry. Mm. You know, you will see that it's the big chunk of it is about understanding ingredients because I don't want you to walk into a Japanese market and not understand this soy sauce from another soy sauce or wakame from a kombu seaweed. I think you have to get some un- understanding of it. So I explain that and. Uh, as much as I can. So you read through that, and then I show you fundamentals uh, of uh, cooking a stock. Mm-hmm. Stock is so important. If you're Japanese, and stock is called dashi, but you, being, you begin cooking with stock. In Western cooking, you probably would fry up some onions and garlic and olive oil. It's more about starting with oil, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a fundamental dis- difference in how you approach food. So I want to understand, I want you to understand some of those basics. And the easiest way is to understand stock. And you could do a simple one by just doing a cold brew of kombu and just put it in a pitcher of water, mm. a piece of kombu, and make dashi. And then add some miso paste and make a miso soup. It's simple as that. And, you know, 15 minutes, you have a soup. That's delightful. Mm. And people are really surprised. And so many of my um, students come and say, well, I grew up on dashi powder, you know, artificial dashi powder. Well, my mother used that too, you know. But um, I say, you know, it's so easy to make um, a simple stock. So let me teach you that. Mm. And I show them how to put these ingredients together. And in no time, they'll, they'll say, oh, that's right. Right. Yeah. Well, especially Japanese dashi. So, um, you know, kombu and bonito flakes, they are classic, like two, mm-hmm. you know, 
I don't know, the two big, biggest elements making dashi. But we don't have to spend time to make dashi because craftsmen spend months and months to make dashi and um, the kombu and yeah, burrito. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, I feel like I'm cheating. I and mean, everything's guaranteed. It tastes so much better than without. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so again, uh, the listeners, the title of the book is Japanese Home Cooking, Simple Meals, Authentic Flavors. Um, so we'll talk about the links. Uh, is it Amazon.com and available? And oh, it's available in bookstores everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, Barnes and Noble, and the, please go to the independent bookstores. Um, I found I, I did actually a, a lot of my work here in New, New York was to visit the bookstores, the independent bookstores, mm. and Kinokuniya is another one, right? Mm. Japanese and um, wonderful bookstores all over town, and they carry my book. Right. It's a beautiful book, so best for Christmas present. Oh, yeah, right? don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, and um, I want to discuss the your being grain activist. Mm -hmm. So um, how did you become passionate about restoring ancient grains? Uh, it wasn't really my idea. <laughs> it's kind of my pursuit of just trying to find good flour uh, led me to farmers and scientists and millers and... One particular person, Glenn Roberts from Manson Mills uh, in South Carolina, uh, was somebody that has uh, revived um, corn mm. and, 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 and rice of that region and um, really the, the southern larder. And I um, started a dialogue with him and because he also grew buckwheat in the mm. Appalachians. Uh, and I... Um, started testing his, his flowers for soba, and we would just compare notes and talk about all these grains. And one day he flew out and he says, I have something important to tell you. And he says, um, you know, Southern California or California used to be a, a grain growing region of all these uh, beautiful ancient grains, wheats, a variety of wheats, not just one wheat, not one modern wheat like they grow uh, for yield in the Midwest, but... Um, uh, these varieties of heritage grains and beautiful barley and oats and uh, rye and he, he encouraged me to start uh, an experiment and mm. um, finding a farmer who might want to grow it. So I had to find someone who was interested in um, organic or sustainable farming who would be willing to grow several rows of heritage mm. grains and um, and do that. And California is a is a very big agricultural place, but um, most people earn their living from uh, growing uh, fruit and vegetables. So mm -hmm. it's a, that's the cash crop. So to to do grains is is not that um, economical in the beginning. But we encourage some um, like-minded farmers to start experimenting, and I found like five of them, and we started planting. You know, we, we actually got a donation of four tons of ancient grains of wow. four or five varieties of wheat and barley and buckwheat, and mm. we planted them. Wow. He even gave me a combine. Wow. Can you believe it? A combine, <laughs> a vintage combine. It was kind of a, a fun experiment. And 10 years later, there are farmers growing it, and now we have grains and, and flour available at the farmer's market and in Southern California and available to chefs. So that's a remarkable um, 
I think, success in a small scale, but um, it's, it's also a, a crop that farmers are using as a rotation crop. So that's good for the so- soil. Mm. And the, our ultimate glo- goal is to restore the health, health of our soils. Mm, right. And also, ancient grains are more kind of nutritious, people say, as well. Um, I don't know about the nutritional value, um, um, but I, I, you know, compared to like GMO, but, you know, there's no GMO wheat, there's GMO soybeans, right? Mm. So we really don't know how GMO soybeans affects our body, but I just don't want things to be altered. Right. Yeah. Mm. But um, there was all kinds of people breeding, breeding ancient grains or breeding modern grains. But anyway, I like um, the idea of restoring, restoring some good old flavors and, and also diversifying the way you grow because you don't want to just grow one thing and that's mm-hmm. what's happened to our country you just go one kind of wheat one kind of corn and depleting the mm-hmm. health of the soils right well eventually it depletes our nutritious oh, components in our body too oh yes and so industrial farming is is not good right know? Well, the, luckily, such like Dunbar or uh, Sean Brock and, you know, those yeah, yeah, great yeah. activists yeah. are there, but it's not enough. So. It's not enough. And I think it has to start, the choice can be made by a home cook. Mm. You know, I'm not a farmer planting buckwheat or I'm not a fa- farmer doing all these, the hard work, but you could be the, you could be the consumer right. and choose mm. to pick, you know, flour made by the f- farmer in your local neighborhood because that's different from the industrial flowers that sit on the shelf mm-hmm. for you don't know how many years. Right. And you will taste the difference in the flavor of something freshly milled versus something that is made for yield and um, shelf life. Right. Yeah. That is so true. I just tried, happened to try uh, freshly milled rice, mm-hmm. not the, the rice imported from Japan, like that milled like month and month ago. Yeah. It's much heavier. Yeah. And juicier and more flavor. So yeah. I exactly understand what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I'm curious about, so, you know, the grains can be very different, minerally different. And, mm-hmm. you know, those, all those nutritious values really provides different tastes too. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah I'll be really excited to try. Yeah. Those, uh, and this, you know, just at the bread lab in Washington alone, I work with a bread lab, like uh, Dr. Scott jo- uh, uh, Jones, Steve Jones. He um, breeds about 40,000 varieties of grains. What? Yes, 40,000. 40,000. 40, <laughs> and over 150 uh, varieties of buckwheat. Mm. And um, there's actually a grain school that he conducts. And you could actually see the different variety patches of experimental fields at the lab. And a lot of them are planted for restoration. Mm, wow. And you get to taste the different grains. It's unbelievable. Oh, different wheats, they look different too. Mm. Yeah. So, what's the name of the lab you said? It's the Bread Lab. Bread Lab. Yeah, it's okay. been written a lot in the, like the New York Times. And, mm. um, it's, but there's like also in Colorado, the University of Colorado does a grain school. And mm. There's so grain schools in different places. Also in New York, there's um, groups that are getting together to um, talk about grains. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I'll definitely look up. Yeah. So, okay, so we are kind of running out of time. So what are your plans? Next. Long time, short time? Where? I continue. Just mm. continue what I do. Continue teaching and learning and, um, and writing. 
um, I, I just want to get through this tour and sell a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> That's my primary goal because it's like a, once you have a, a, a you know book that people like like to have on their shelves, then they'll pull it out and they'll refer refer to me, and then they could come to my cooking class, or mm. and then you know we'll we'll see what I evolve into. You know, right. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I hope to keep evolving. Mm. Yeah. But you never know. Right? Suddenly you decide to learn something, just like you learn soba making. You might. Yeah. No. And I I did curry. By the way, I don't know if you heard of my curry bricks, but I was so against. The industrial curry, mm. so I um, deconstructed the industrial roux Ooh. and made my own curry bricks, and actually that's become my most popular cooking oh, really? class. Wow! Because yeah. I, I like Japanese curry once in a while, but if you read the box, there's just so many things. It's horrible, that- <laughs> right? So, including palm oil, which I really do mm. not like. Uh, what's happening with the palm oil industry? So. My curry brick does not have any of that. Mm. It's just, you know, it's a rune made with butter and flour and whole spices that mm. I grind and toast. And I teach that in my classes to make oh, a brick. Right. So it's not sold anywhere? No, not yet. But okay. I did a pop-up at Marlowe & Sons yesterday. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and wow. it's been featured in the New York Times. That's nice. So um, you could actually go to the New York Times or you could go to my cookbook. Mm. And that's where I make the introduction to my curry brick. And... Um, it's so much fun to work with whole spices. Right. See, that's the thing is you want to work from whole, whole, whole mm. the, the whole foods, you know, whole, whole grains, whole seeds. Right. And you start looking at shapes and colors of, and smells. And right. That's, that's what I want you to appreciate, mm. you know, because then you know who you could appreciate the person that grew it and, right. or nature that give it, gave it to us. And it's a gift, and you don't want to spoil it. Mm. And also, I think by smelling it, you appreciate more, you enjoy more. Yeah, I, I swear it by my curry break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try to make it myself. Yes. <laughs> All right, so uh, where can we find your updates, classes, and any other information? Uh, please uh, visit sonokosakai.com. Okay, so yeah. it's S-O-N-O-K-O-S-A-K-I.com. Sonokosakai.com. Yes. Okay, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hopefully you can come back and tell us more yes, about what you're thank doing. You, There's so much going on with you. So oh, I thank can, you, Echo. Thank you. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds.heritageradionetwork.org or kikotaema.com. Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Uh, Engineer, it's Amanda Wong, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening. <laughs>